Welcome back to The Director's Diary. This is chapter eight. Um, I hope you're all doing well and thank you so much for coming back. This chapter is a conversation with um, a good friend and someone who I admire the work of, um, James Underwood. He's based in Leeds, he's an actor and a writer, he makes really interesting work um, and has a really interesting outlook on what it means to be an artist, um, especially with juggling kind of different art forms as well. So he works in film, um, comedy and writing, new writing, and also runs um, a kind of mini festival of work called Arts at the Arms, which he will go into later. So without further ado, welcome to The Director's Diary. It's no one's intention ever to share a diary, so if you're listening to this, keep it close and use it well. So, thank you, James, for agreeing to be on the podcast. Um, I think it's an amazing thing uh, that you're going to be on. Um, I think you've got a lot of great ideas. When we've talked, we've got a lot of great ideas. Um, I was just like, okay, we need to be recording this. Yeah. Um, so, what I would like to do first is something that we do with a lot of the guests that we put on is... Um, I'm going to give you one or two minutes to tell us your life story. So it's obviously an impossible task, but it's interesting what people pick out as their kind of key moments. So great. Um, I'm on the clock, so go. Great. So uh, as you probably can tell, I'm from the south, but uh, I've been up here in Leeds for 13 years now, which sort of feels like quite a long time. Uh, when I was at school, I was always wanting to act and for a long time, I was planning to go to theatre school. Uh, life took me in a different direction, and I ended up coming up here to the University of Leeds. Uh, I didn't turn up in Leeds until I came here for university, so I hadn't even visited the city. It was my backup, and I came to study philosophy. And people obviously think that philosophy is not the most practical thing in the world. So what did I do? I did a master's degree, also in philosophy. <laughs> uh, but things I was interested in were sort of political philosophy, uh, philosophy of art. I did a lot of stuff on aesthetics, which was really interesting. So basically, while I was at university, I sort of moved away from the arts. Uh, my ambitions to be an actor sort of fell by the wayside. And then about eight years ago, I was in a piece called Promised Land with the uh, Leeds-based theatre company Red Ladder. It was a community cast, but a professional director, choreographer, musicians... And, well, they had an open audition. My uh, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, said, oh, you should go for that. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure, I can't sh really sing. And she was like, well, either shit or get off the pot, basically. She <laughs> said, uh, you're always mentioning how much you miss it, and uh, which I did. And so I went for the audition, uh, got a really interesting part in it, and that really kick-started my love of um, theatre and of acting again. And that sort of led me to where I am today, where I've got lots of different exciting creative projects on the go. Great. Amazing. That was just under two minutes. Oh, very perfect. well done. Um, so one one key thing that I'd like to ask you, that's kind of just for my own selfishness really, is um, how do you organise yourself? And so like, what's your daily routine? And I've seen you've got a lot of uh, diaries so like what is in them or how do you organize yourself in those kind of creative projects that you just said well I think that's a great question so uh, I don't work full-time in the arts I have a full-time job outside of it where I'm a product manager um, but at the same time I've got a couple of really sort of I don't know creative projects which I'm really sort of excited about and proud of and I've also had the chance in the past to work uh, professionally doing acting as well as starting up my own arts event with uh, one of your previous guests Chris O'Connor yeah, which I Chris guess yeah. Yeah, the infamous Chris O'Connor which yeah. I imagine we'll touch upon later in the interview but uh, so with all those sort of different things I think being organized is key and there's a lot of different skills that actually sort of cross over so um, yeah I'm one of these people who likes to write lists I'm one mm. of these people who likes to write things down so I've got a notebook which covers my work on my short film I've got a notebook marked acting I've got a notebook at the moment which I sort of try and write down every play I see every book I read every film I re watch mm. uh, essentially I sort of try and give a when I read it or watched it uh, a brief summary of what it was and then the sort of ideas that I took from it cool. uh, 
which again I think is uh, something that you and I have talked about off pod but about how you come up with different ideas and how different sort of pieces of work inspire you mm. and I think it's easy to have a great idea or read a book or something which really sort of captures your imagination and sometimes you sort of that can dissipate so I'm trying my best to try and keep a track of those sort of things so when do you go back to those when do you go back to those kind of um movies you've watched or books you've read like do you go when you're making work or do you flick through casually or when so, do you use it um that's a really interesting question so uh, I recently finished a script for a short film which is currently in pre-production um one of the things I did because previously I'd only really done acting and this was my sort of one of my first forays as a writer and I'd read a screenwriting book and again there was things I liked about it things I didn't but it gave me a sense of structure and once you've got a better idea of structure you can understand whether you're trying to subvert it or not but that understanding of the structure gives you a framework within which to work and so I read the book I made a series of quite detailed notes and then I went back over those same notes uh, with a different colour pen because that's sort of how my brain works uh, (laughs) making a note of how that would fit into the sort of script that I was developing at the time and then I sort of sat down with that sort of uh, overarching structure in mind and then wrote the individual scenes and then uh, they say the art of writing is rewriting and so I sent my draft away to people like Chris, to other people I knew who were writers, got a series of different feedback, and then sort of tried to incorporate that. But then, again, I went back to those same set of notes to sort of go, ah, oh, why had I done this? What was the sort of value in it? And, uh, and I think sometimes you just, as I said before, sometimes it's just a sort of key phrase or a key idea. Uh, one thing I read in this screenwriting book, which was called Save the Cat, which I think is mainly focused on sort of like the Hollywood model of screenwriting and some of it which I wasn't necessarily that sort of keen on but uh, there was definitely some great ideas in there and one of the things that they said was in a script you should be able to take away the um, names of the characters and still be able to tell who's saying what so I think that's interesting so that gives you an idea of when a character is just a sort of placeholder or serving the sort of function in the script to make sure that no each individual person has a sort of recognizable character and obviously you can overdo that but at the same time if you took away the names of the people in the script and you couldn't tell who was saying which line then you know that you've got a problem because you've not really injected any sort of character and think dialogue is a very difficult thing to write but the more you can do Again, like obviously, you need to sort of allow for subtlety and subtext, especially. And I appreciate that as an actor, you don't want the writer just to tell you what mm. to do completely. But at the same time, having a sense of voice in the characters was really something that um, I took from that book. And that was a real nice sort of nugget that when I was rereading my notes, I was like, ah, oh, that plays into how I've written that particular character. That's really cool. So you say you've got another, you've got a real, real world job. A real world job, yeah. <laughs> so how do you manage balancing the two? Because I would have never known you um, had a real world job. Because um, I've known you in the arts context and kind of arts in the arms, which we'll touch on later. But is an amazing thing. So how do you manage? Uh, yeah, the, your expectations and kind of how do you manage your workload as well because you must have a lot going on. I think again, that's being or trying to be well organised is a big thing which allows you to do that. I'm lucky that I've worked in environments mainly where one, I've got a lot of holiday, and two, which I think the world has changed in a very positive way that flexible working is much more readily available for many people, especially in an office environment. that most importantly I think that we're trying to move away as a sort of society again there's lots of bad things you can talk about about Mm. how the world has changed recently but one of the good things is that like presenteeism is sort of less of a thing that like turning up at 8 30 and leaving at 5 30 and making sure you're always there at your desk is secondary to actually getting the work done so I feel that treating the people you work with in a professional context with respect and you gain their respect so that they know that you're working and if I 
want to finish at lunchtime in order to sort of have a meeting with the creative or the fact that I can take, say, a period of unpaid leave because they know that I'm sort of respectful of them and the work they're trying to do as well as the work that I'm trying to do myself. Um, I think that's really important. Uh, my boss at the moment, well, my boss's boss is in a um, indie rock band, for example. Yeah, really? uh, you can find their music on like iTunes. They've done sort of like various BBC introducing things, and I think like people are sort of more like being able to be authentically yourself is such a big thing. Yeah. And when you come to work, you don't want to be putting on a front. And so people know that I have this arts event. People know that I'm working on this other stuff, and. I think I've not given up on the ambition to perhaps have the arts stuff be sort of a full-time job for me, but at the same time I do a good job in the job that I do sort of Monday to Friday or sometimes Monday to Thursday or depending on the other sort of like art stuff that I do and that sort of, uh, yeah, treating those people with respect and they treat me with similar respect and that gives me a little bit of leeway to do these sort of things, which is great. That's really interesting and I think most people listening to this I was just saying off the podcast that most people in my experience have had a another job yeah. that is no, a non-arts job say to to maybe fund unless you get given loads of money yeah <laughs> and you're set up for life that is the reality of and and most people may introduce themselves as a director or a producer or whatever and you would just never know that they oh it's, it's, 100% a, it's and I think them. yeah uh, that's an interesting thing that sort of took me a while to come to terms with because I've been at events with sort of people in the industry especially around here in Leeds because I know a lot of different people which mm. is great but people say uh, I've been introduced to people as an actor before mm. and I'm like well yeah I am but then and and now I'm much sort of more confident in saying that I'm an actor I'm a writer I'm a creative and I've got lots of interesting projects I'll talk people's ears off about mm. which is how me and you met yeah, exactly but, but at the same time it took me a while to find that confidence that when you're not doing that full-time necessarily or if some of the stuff you're doing isn't paying you any money that doesn't mean you're any less of an artist but being able to have that confidence to define yourself in those terms is is important but it's also scary right? mm. and I think yeah, that took me... I didn't learn that straight away, but I think that's something which I sort of have come to now, which is... Yeah, I, I think the it, you're absolutely right. It's that kind of stepping out into the unknown and, and putting your flag down somewhere and going, I'm a director or <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a producer or I'm an actor. And that I found that in my last year of uni, actually, they were like, no, you've got to sell yourself as a director. You're not You're not just a, yeah. a emerging something. You're, you're a director and... And that comes with like valuing your own work and kind of all that. But it's yeah. scary, right? It's oh, the, yeah. And and valuing your own work is is really important. But also you have that sort of moment of doubt because like, I'm sure you have the same thing. I know lots of really talented people. And then sometimes you're like, not in an envious way, but sometimes you're like, oh, wow, they're really good. Or yeah. you're like, oh, oh can, I, can I say I'm this when I'm comparing myself to that? Well... That's not really how it works, but mm. that's sometimes one of those things that fades into sort of like... And having that confidence, like, it, if you exude that confidence, it sort of can feed onto other people, right? And again, part of what I've found in this sort of... In my sort of journey in the arts is about creating good relationships is such an important thing uh, that you'll meet other people and if you've worked with someone and then you've got on, then you'll hear and about something else and yeah the ball sometimes rolls from there and and once you sort of like so that's why like, not being an arsehole is really important because <laughs> <Absolutely. laughs> it's that, so important actually isn't it? it's not said enough but actually and I think this is a bit of like thing which sort of goes beyond the arts right but um, getting a job is not just about being competent because obviously being competent is great and you want people who are good at what they do yeah but also, you need people who are good to work with. And that fit in terms of that cultural fit or that personality fit. But I'm not saying you should get people who are the same as you, because I think like diversity is so important, especially for the generation of ideas, which might be something we touch upon mm -hmm. later. But, uh, yeah, 
people going, oh, yeah, oh, he was quite a good actor and, yeah, he was always on time and he's a really nice bloke. And and that will get you work, right? Yeah. That will make you higher up the chain of someone who was unpleasant or yeah. sort of uh, a bit of a flake, do yeah. you know what I mean? And those sort of things which are sort of in some way more related to your attitude and separate to your sort of skill yeah. uh, are are really valuable. So. And something for me as well that you just touched upon there is about like I think we we've I think I've definitely grown up with the kind of Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs era of kind of these people who are lauded as amazing leaders mm. but who were horrible to their staff. Oh yeah. Like and it's and I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's either you're amazing and an arsehole or you're <laughs> rubbish at what you do and you're a, like Oh yeah. I think you can be a genius at what you do and be nice to people, right? It's like Again, going back to what I was talking about before about like reading different sorts of books and how you get different ideas. Like mm. uh, I'm a rugby player and a rugby fan and I read a book by uh, Ben Ryan who is a sevens coach and he coached Fiji to their first ever Olympic medal. They won gold in Brazil. And leadership now is sort of much more complex than just shouting at people and being a fucking arsehole, right? Mm. And like you say, that actually I think like Gareth Southgate with the sort of current crop of England players, just to use two sporting mm. analogies, is that, that that sort of domineering personality, that sort of like my way or the highway, isn't always the best way to lead. The way to lead people is to get people on board with the sort of project, get people on board with the sort of culture of what you're trying to create and try and bring people with you. And sometimes what you want to do is create other leaders that... Uh, so in the arts event that I run with Chris O'Connor, who was one of your previous guests, there's certain things that he's better on, there's certain things that I'm better on. And uh, having that support of like other people to lead in certain things or sort of empowering other people and sort of developing them is something which I think is really interesting and, yeah, important about how we sort of move beyond that sort of, I don't know, very traditional sort of, sort of I don't know, classic patriarchy thing of like, one man mm. being in charge and sort of telling other people what to do, that you can be a leader in a different way. And I think we're starting to sort of understand more about that nowadays. That's great. Bit of a tangent, but I, I yeah, enjoyed sorry, it. Yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. It was uh, um, the next, next thing I've got on here that I'd really like to ask you. I'm, I'm interested in the answer, actually. It's uh, what, what would your advice be? to a kind of smart and driven uni student wanting to go into, let's say, acting or, or writing. So what, what would your advice I, I be think, for them? Or what advice should they ignore? Oh, that's a really good question, what advice they should... I think things change very quickly, especially in this industry, and what might have worked in the past isn't a indication that it will always work in the future. So I think not that you should discount other people's ideas but just because uh, you're told by your tutors or by uh, people who are say older and years than you that this is the way things are done that might not be the way things are done now you think about how things like the internet has just been such a massive disruptor of so many different sort of fields with the creative fields being one of them uh, being able to be able to be out there and make work and then get people to see it I think is much more accessible now uh, thanks to things like the internet and I think beyond sort of I'll try and not give any sort of like professional advice but I think if you're an actor if you're a writer if you're a creative make the thing make the thing and try and get it out there that people can like, if you're waiting for the perfect moment it might not come if you're waiting for someone to hand you an opportunity it might not come what I'm trying to do at the moment and one of the things that the projects we're going to talk about is taking your own initiative and sort of making something and getting it out into the world and it might not be good but then from that you'll have learned things and you sort of learn from failures and you can also learn from successes but by actually making something then you're in a position to sort of iterate forward from it and once you've done something then you can sort of build further from that 
Um, I've got another tangent for you if you're yeah, willing cool. to go yeah, on. Yeah, let's go. So I read the book uh, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, which I really loved, and I think that I took some really interesting ideas from that. And one of the things about it is the sort of disadvantages of things you believe to be strengths, so like the Goliath thing, and the advantages of things people perceive to be weaknesses. And one of the things it was talking about was about being a big, uh, a small fish in a big pond. Mm. And obviously, there's no problem, right? And there's a lot of value in sort of aiming to be, strive to be the best university, the best theatre school, all of those sort of things. But that's not the be-all and end-all. Um, if you're in a small place, being there and sort of making your own scene or making your own work is so important. So the example he gives in the book is um, the French Impressionists, so like Monet, Manet, all those guys. And a lot of them were mates and they were hanging around the same sort of bars and restaurants. And at the time, the big thing in the Parisian art scene, in the whole French art scene, was the salon. And if you weren't in the salon, you were nobody. And so they were sort of plugging away and they'd probably try and get all these sort of really incredible artists who you've heard of today were plugging away and getting nowhere. They were trying to get into this big elite club and they weren't having any success. So what they did was they hired out a space, they put on their own exhibition and... Now, if you looked at the works that had been on in that first exhibition where these guys who were trying to do something different, trying to create their own work, trying to make their own scene, it'd be worth sort of almost a billion pounds because mm-hmm. there was all these sort of famous people and these famous works. And I think that's something that people sometimes forget, that, that there's not always one route to success. It'd be great, and, like, and obviously it works very well for some people if you go to a top drama school and then from then you get an agent and then you go and be successful that way which is great but if you haven't done that don't lose your passion for things like keep on making work and like make your own scene be part of something or your your local community keep on trying to make things that are important to you and yeah that can lead its own way so that was the sort of the tangent yeah that's great So, so let's talk about I mean that's kind of building it from the ground up yourself, right? It's kind of, if it's not there, build it. Yeah. So let's talk about Arts in the Arms, which is, which is your kind of, one of your ventures. Yeah. Um, and might fit that mentality, right? It's kind of like, you're building it. Oh, definitely. Um, your co-founders with Chris O'Connor, it's a, uh, so for people who don't know, um, Arts in the Arms is a kind of, it's a, it's a performing arts event, it's specialising in new work, um, theatre, comedy, sketch comedy, and and you've also got exciting plans to kind of go into kind of more dance and short film and other interesting art forms as well. So, could you could you talk about that for a bit? And yeah, say how that came about and, and so, where you are. Yeah, so uh, Chris and I have been friends for more than ten years now. Which again, like when I said at the start of the podcast that I've been in Leeds for thirteen, it really sort of hits home that you're starting in your thirties now. <laughs> uh, but basically you see in various cities around the country like obviously London has a big fringe scene Manchester has a big fringe scene um, there is some great bits of sort of fringe theatre happening here in Leeds which like, work in different ways there's Leeds Pub Theatre which is led by a guy called Jonathan Hall who's a good writer he's a writing for piece for radio at the moment but he's also involved in the script Yorkshire and sort of he does a lot to support local artists and again that's great. They're working out of a pub um, in the city centre and they're putting on um, sort of these evenings usually twice a year uh, to help artists, so helping writers and actors to get together and put an evening of work on bound a theme. And again, you've got people like Slunglow who are based at the Holbeck who have a thing called Slunglow Shorts, which is very similar to a uh, thing they do over in Manchester called JB Shorts, which again is about short plays written by established writers by new writers JB Shorts is predominantly by television writers but for theatre mm. and again is a sort of showcase of the work that the city has got on and so that's a bit of context around what was going on in the city and so uh, I'm an actor and I'm a writer now as well uh, Chris is a playwright and we were we wanted to do something similar, but we wanted to make it broader. We wanted to sort of try and support the variety of creatives we know in the city who are sort of 
making great work, but also to give a platform for them to explore the creation of new work. So, yeah, we had our first event back last year, which ended up selling out, which was great because it was the same night as the election, which they announced, obviously, quite rapid fire. Mm -hmm. So we had our date in the calendar, and then they announced the election, which was a a little bit of a kick in the teeth, but not as much as a result. So You sold out there. Yeah, yeah, and that was great. And essentially, we programmed from there, but we had uh, sketch comedy, we had monologues, we had a short play... Um, we had stand-up comics uh, and say ideally we're looking to sort of have in our programme so we've got three events planned in for next year where we're going to try and expand to include poetry dance maybe even short film so yeah it's we're trying to sort of support this sort of ecosystem of artists in the city and in West Yorkshire a little bit broader but predominantly in Leeds because there's some great people doing great stuff and sometimes you just need the support to put a new idea in front of an audience and see how it goes. So, so I'm a I'm a student wanting to do similar things in maybe Leeds maybe a different city. What how have you got to that point? So how how have you cuz at the Cardigan Arms, right? So, yeah. so how so that's a, a quite a nice pub on Kirkstall Road. Yeah, it's um, on Kirkstall Road near Cardigan Fields, and it's a sort of classic Victorian style pub. So it's a lot of sort of dark wood mm. and brass. So it's very sort of atmospheric in that sort of way. But it's owned by a local brewery called Kirkstall Brewery, who are again one of these sort of breweries which have been quite traditional but at the same time have really sort of taken on this craft beer revolution so they're sort of doing really well for themselves they own sort of several different pubs they're about to open a tap room so again I suppose it's trendy without being pretentious and sort of got a mix of sort of say I suppose younger people but also sort of like a traditional set of locals who go so, there so how do you know the pub already or do you, how do you like, yeah we were, we were very lucky so uh, me and Chris know each other because I used to work in the student union bar when I was at the University of Leeds and Chris was always in there. So <laughs> <laughs> That's perhaps a bit unfair on him. But, uh, a good friend of both of ours, uh, Joe, was one of his sort of housemates and really good friends and he worked with me behind the bar. So that's how we became friends. I really hope Chris is listening to this. Yeah, I hope he does as well. Uh, I'll take credit for his whole career in a minute. Um, <laughs> And um, the guy who was running, well, he was the assistant manager of the old bar at the time, and he started the same day as I did. Um, It was a guy called Dan Burrows, who's a good friend of ours as well. And he now manages the Cardigan Arms. And he's always been very supportive of the arts. He's sort of quite a creative guy himself. And basically, he's sort of seen pieces that I've done. He's seen Chris's plays, and he was really sort of again part of this sort of fringe scene that we're sort of starting to see emerge in the city he was like I'd love to have a piece on at the cardigan and so so was it his idea to have it there or was it kind of through conversations or how how did that happen oh that's so I was developing a new piece of work Chris had developed a piece which was meant to be on a part of Leeds Pub Theatre and because of um, Paul Fox who's a uh, actor who's very very good he got uh, a big gig for the BBC for CBC so he couldn't do the night anymore so Chris wasn't able to sort of showcase that piece that he had I had a piece as well in the back of our mind we knew that we had a really cool venue that we could showcase stuff and a friend who was supportive of the sort of stuff that we were doing and I think we were like well why don't we why don't we do our own why don't we make our own thing? Mm. And so I wanted to do my piece, he wanted to do his piece, but then, and we knew we had a location, so from there we sort of built out, we sort of started to, as I said, one of the great things about the city is the sort of way you can meet people and then how that sort of snowballs, and also once you've made a good relationship with people, that is a really sort of powerful thing. So we were able to reach out to different people within our network and sort of build the programme for our first event off the back of that. And 
And and when you say built the event, I'm just interested in if I don't know anything about making oh. an event like that. So how it was? What was the agreement with the venue? And like, how does that work? Is the kind of because um, it's ticketed as well. So is it, I don't yeah. know. You do is it a kind of like profit share yeah. kind of thing? The artists. Like how I'm just interested in like how the some how, more of the practicalities. How, yeah. How yeah. Does it work? So like anything, and especially sort of like in my other sort of side you don't always anticipate how much work or how much organisation will go into something like this. And what was great was we created something which we were really proud of and we're really sort of excited to move forward with. Mm. And that's really exciting. But we were lucky that we were able to use the space for free. I know you've talked about this in the um, some of your previous episodes, that there's no harm in asking people for favours. No, or no. Uh, and for something like this, we took an extra 70 people into a pub, right? Uh, they were keen to have us and so sometimes obviously you will need to pay and I know that for example Leeds Pub Theatre paid to use the Adelphi which is fine I think leaning on those personal good relationships and also being prepared to sort of ask the question sort of gave helped us get the space so that meant that we would any money that we made, we were able to split amongst the people who were the creatives involved. And we were just doing a straight split amongst everyone who um, was involved in putting on the night, which was great. Again, it didn't end up being masses of money, but we sold 70 tickets, say, at £8 a pop. Um, Eventbrite got their cut, which yeah. again is sort of part of it. But again, that's actually a really useful service. Um because you can use the free version and they'll take a percentage of your um, of the money you make mm. or you can do it in a way where you pass on the fees to the um, the audience members we decided to sort of roll them into the cost of our ticket we thought that we asked £8 which is a bit of a different price point compared to the other things which were both pairs you feel mm. but we wanted to sort of Again, going back to valuing your own time, valuing your work, yeah. we wanted to make sure that we were saying we're going to put on eight acts. It's going to cost you eight pounds. Yeah, uh, this I mean, is. I think that's really cheap. Yeah, like, so not, for a night for a night of entertainment, you know, uh, the price that you pay for Netflix for a month, it's like or, or two coffees or you know. Yeah, and I think it's sort of we were trying to get to that point where it was expensive enough that people would value it that yes. people because part of the problem you sometimes see with pay-as-you-feel events especially ones where you can sign up for a free ticket is people won't attend so mm. people will say i'll come but they've not got that even if you put a pound value on something it creates a different sort of mentality in how yeah. people approach things so we thought no ticket it set the price that will sort of one give people a sense of the sort of value that we're placing on it but also make people think if they pay for a ticket they'll definitely turn up yeah which is that's a massive thing isn't it and, yeah. and that's also that also goes into if you're a freelancer what's your day rate oh yeah when you ask what your day rate is it's like well I don't know what, what, what is my day rate well, how much do I... and that was a real big thing for me um, that's super interesting so so you've got this night you've got this uh, you've got this mm-hmm. venue you've got uh, you've got people coming up how and we've spoken about this a little bit, but how do you how do you create content? How do you um, come up with your ideas that you're like, okay, yeah, that's the thing that I want to do? Right, so that's a really interesting thing. So the whole night was a really, obviously like sort of certainly serendipitous. And like I said, that I had a piece that I would was developing that I really wanted to perform. Chris yeah. had a piece and that sort of drove us to take something which had been in the sort of back of our brain to turn it into a reality Mm. and as I say we've talked a little bit about venue we've talked a little bit about ticketing I'm very lucky that my wife is a graphic designer so we had some great quality branding again things you were talking about before about like the documentation we also had a photographer take photos of the event so not only were we able to sort of share the profits that everyone had a very high quality sort of experience in terms of like a little mini poster about their piece on at the event and there was photographs which had been edited afterwards, which uh, were branded with the Arts at the Arms yeah. logo. And all that sort of stuff helps give that sense of professionalism and also sort of, again, that care that we took in it and placed the value on it 
um, helps sort of translate to how the people experience the event, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but to properly answer your question, <laughs> uh, I had a sort of traumatic's probably an over. Well, no, it's not an overstatement. So last summer, uh, my dad had a stroke, and he is in his early fifties. Um, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, exercises. So the concept of him having a stroke was sort of both really scary and out of the blue. Now, I had a different sort of full-time job at the time, which I wasn't enjoying, and basically I jacked it in for three months and moved back home and helped with his recovery. Mm. Now, I was very lucky and he was lucky, but also part of the reason he was lucky was because of these things that made it so unusual that he sort of, obviously didn't drink, didn't smoke, and exercise regularly, and the fact that I was able to give up that time to spend with him was really important to me because family is one of the most important things to me and uh, so I'd had this experience where basically my life had switched upside down I'd been in Leeds living my normal sort of day-to-day life and then this big event happens and suddenly I'm back living with my parents which I've not done for sort of a very long time and I was helping my ill father uh, sort of recover from something that could have killed him Mm. essentially and that was obviously something that sort of was a big event in my life and that sort of inspired me to write the piece was the piece that I wanted to make that helped sort of kick off Arts of the Arms so it's sort of semi-autobiographical rather Mm -hmm. than being sort of fully autobiographical and it's about a guy it's about father and son relationships it's about a guy who's the son of a boxer who's suffering from early onset dementia as a result of a head injury. And so I'd had the opportunity as a young man to play rugby with my dad. He'd always been very active and that sort of sporting setting was a real sort of key thing to me. There's a whole segment in the uh, in the monologue about nicknames, which some of them are for real people who I know. Uh, one of them that didn't make it was a, we used to play rugby with a guy called Pikachu. <laughs> and... That's because he was a short, fat guy and the shirts were bright yellow with sort of blue <laughs> stripes, so he looked like a Pikachu. And, uh, yeah, these sort of funny stories that are part of your life, um, funny or sad, can really sort of inspire you. So I had this sort of... I wrote it, and obviously, again, like I said before, a lot of writing is rewriting and making sure, but the initial driver of it was this sort of cathartic experience that, luckily for me, that my dad made it he's still recovering a little bit but at the same time he's done such a great job that he's back running he's back working he's back driving like for people who didn't know him who knew him less well wouldn't have never known and I was grateful for the fact that I had the opportunity to sort of take the time to go back and sort of support him but also to have have him recover so well so but at the same time that didn't stop it having been a sort of fairly traumatic experience and I found writing this story of someone who had that similar sort of almost hero worship relationship with his father but also that thing about about men struggling to express their feelings which again I think is really sort of an interesting area which is sort of very current and very sort of like men's mental health is a big thing and part of that I think comes from the fact that men often sort of struggle to express themselves and or feel open to express their emotions. So that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about in this piece because it starts off sort of quite laddie, quite jokey. It's set in this sort of boxing club and it's about nicknames and sort of funny stories before it sort of draws in to talk about his father in a more personal way and about what's happened and about how his mind has been affected by Mm. um, by this disease. And... Yeah, so that sort of personal experience sort of drove the creation of that piece of work. And I think most people, I think most people who are creative will go, ah, oh, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd done that. And I think that's one of the things that when we first started having conversations we were talking about was that I was really proud of the piece. And what was really great for me was sort of two days beforehand, uh, I didn't realise, but my dad and brother decided that they were going to come up to Leeds to watch it. And 
didn't st- made it nerve wracking in the having them in the audience, but at the same time, did you perform it? Did yeah, perform it I performed it as well, which was great. But um, wow, yeah, it was again that personal story was a real sort of um, drive for, for. So they get the context, and they 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 know. Oh, if, yeah. If no one knows it's autobiographical, they do. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think that's amazing. Yeah, so that was that was a really sort of interesting piece of work and but yeah like I say I want to do more with it now I want mm. it to have a life beyond that initial sort of iteration of it and I think there's a lot to be sort of talked about in that sort of whole sphere and um, a friend of mine is a um, well two friends of mine work up at Leeds um, Beckett uh, doing PhDs working with people with dementia mm. and uh, yeah, Cara and Alice, and they gave me some really interesting things to read and sort of talk about. They do a sporting reminiscence group, uh, which is for sort of people suffering from sort of Alzheimer's or dementia. They talk about sports, and that's one of those things which really sort of stick with people, and those memories yeah. really sort of conjure up things. And yeah, so I think from that research they gave me, I think there's you could expand the piece, and I'd like to sort of yeah have a bit more direction I think I need to sort of take it away from myself because I think it was very personal to me and I think I'd like to see someone else perform it and see how they sort of interpret the words so yeah, that'd be really cool yeah so could you could we take a little tangent and you talk about a fish yes which, uh, oh. <laughs> which might not mean anything to anyone listening at the moment but hopefully it will in about 10 minutes or so. fingers crossed uh, so that piece of work, obviously, I was talking, was sort of very driven by personal experience. But um, I went to a design conference several years ago with my wife, and one of the things that I took from that was um, a methodology which I'm going to describe as the fifth, the fish methodology. So you think about uh, the classic drawing of a line drawing of a fish, where you sort of have the wide tail into the curved body. So essentially, you've got a triangle followed by almost like a diamond but sort of like a teardrop on its side yes exactly um and so what this represents in terms of the um, generation of ideas is about how when you're trying to come up with new ideas you don't want to be limited right you want to sort of try and work for the broadest spectrum as possible so um, in this case um i'll use what i'm currently working on as well is a short film and I had an idea to work, come up with a short film and I had a friend who was a photographer and cinematographer and director and we kept on saying, oh, we'll, we'll make something together. Let, let's make something together. And so I was like, right, what I'm going to do, I've got a couple of ideas, but rather than be narrowed down, I'm going to start broad. So this is the wide end of the fish and come up with sort of, five or six different ideas rather than sort of come up with one and sort of work really hard on it and then turn out that it's not quite the thing that we wanted to do or it's not practical I thought don't constrain it try and come up with sort of several different ideas and then uh, I went in and sort of pitched them to him in his studio and we sort of talked through the different ones and then from that it narrowed down to a single idea so that's where the tail of the fish joins the body. So essentially you've gone from starting at a broad base with lots of different ideas to narrowing it down to a single idea. And then once we had that single idea, then you broaden again. So that's where the sort of teardrop, the widest part of the body of the fish is. So essentially you've gone from trying to create lots of different ideas and narrow it down to the best one. That's where the fish meets the body. And then once you've got that single idea, then you broaden out again. So you're using the single idea, but you're trying different variations of it. And you're trying, uh, no idea is a bad idea. You're sort of broadening again. So you're sort of trying to work out what could you do with that individual idea. So rather than sort of go sort of what would be a more linear pattern, you've gone from broad to narrow to broad again. And then once you're at that point when you've sort of elaborated the single idea, which you've running with to the broadest point, then you start to uh, narrow again. So then you're sort of thinking about more practical things and developing that single idea, having looked at sort of various different possibilities of it into 
the sort of piece that you're really going to focus on. And again, obviously, we've talked about this a lot so far, but how you develop that idea further comes uh, in lots of different forms. But I, that always stuck with me, that sort of broad base, narrow it down to a single idea, work out the different variations and where you can take the possibilities of that single idea before tuning in to what you think is the most successful or the most creative or the one with most legs of those ideas and then you've got to a point where you've gone um, sort of full circle so rather Mm. than sort of being wedded to an idea early on sort of putting a load of investment into it you've tried to sort of look at a broader style of um, ideation of idea generation and then that helps you sort of develop the, in a way which should hopefully give you something interesting to work with. So interesting, and and, and something that I'm def- I definitely do, don't do is when I'm pitching for. Maybe this is really bad of me, but I I try and come up with the best idea, one singular idea, and mm. I pitch that. But the, what I mean, what you've just said is that actually there's value in going left field. There's value in going looking at it from a completely different angle, pitching all of them, and then maybe... Yeah, and I think that was what was great about it, that like, there was different ideas on the sort of... on the page of the slate that mm. I sort of went and presented to Declan, and it wasn't necessarily the one that I wanted to do most, was the, the ones that he thought were interesting. most interesting. So if you'd have just got in with that idea, he'd have been less enthused by... The, well, yeah, and I think that's the sort of process, right, that I feel that... Yeah, if I'd have gone in with a single thing in mind, which was sort of further down the line, then it might have sort of prevented us from working together. That I, Again, we've collaborated on things before, which has worked out really well, like short films. I did a couple of music videos for him. And uh, outside of the sort of creative relationship we have, we're friends. But at the same time, would we have wanted to make a film together if I'd have come to, with a sort of really sort of strong, fully formed idea, which wasn't quite to his cup of tea? Whereas we were able to go on this journey together, which was his five ideas I've come up with, which are sort of related to a certain thing. And then he picked what his his favourite were. Then we developed that one further into that narrow point. And then once we got to that point, we're like, okay, so where could we take this? Went several different ways with it. And again, once we'd gone the several different ways with it, so sort of in the second sort of round of sort mm. of widening your thoughts on it then we sort of came to what we thought was the sort of best way to approach it and then narrowed again that's really cool so I'm going to ask you three to finish up three quick fire questions um, and I almost don't want you to think about it I just want the kind of the, in, the instinctual uh, answer but um so when you're feeling overwhelmed or overworked or you've lost focus momentarily, what do you do? Uh, run. I like to run, and I think... But exercise in general is such a sort of great thing to help clear your head, right? Even whether you're sort of going to walk briskly or whether you're going to sort of do sprints. I think sometimes it can be meditative in the same way that say like I really enjoy yoga sometimes as well is where having your mind on something singular and focused helps clear it Mm. because you sort of yeah move outside yourself cool uh which book have you gifted the most and why uh it's probably something fierce which is by Carmen Aguirre who is a Chilean Canadian actor and theatre maker but she also grew up having fighting the dictatorship of Pinochet uh, okay. in Chile, and her parents, well, her mum and stepdad were sort of undercover in the resistance. So, yeah, it's it's a um, it's her like autobiography of that time and her journey from sort of being a revolutionary but growing up under these things and then to being uh, in exile in Canada and then becoming an actor and a theatre maker. It's just an incredible story and it's one of those things that I, I buy for people, I give to people. I, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. Cool. What was the title again? Uh, Something Fierce. Something Fierce. Cool. Um, and final question. 
in the past five years, what new belief, behaviour or habit has most improved your life? That's that's a good one, but a tough one. Uh, mm. I think going back to one of the things we were talking about before about leadership, and so in professional context, in an artistic context, in a sort of team sports context, I think um, that sort of self-confidence to sort of know that you don't have to know the answer um, is probably something that I've really sort of got from sort of leading teams or sort of, uh, yeah, being involved in projects is that sometimes you can be confident without having to know all the right answers and sort of be able to go, you're better at this or I'm prepared to ask you a question whereas I think perhaps when I was younger I thought I knew everything or I might have tried to sort of give the impression of knowing everything whereas actually there's more value sometimes in being one to sort of delegate or to be prepared to ask the question and sort of taking it in a different way. That's a really, really interesting point and I think great place to end it so thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and Thank and you very much for having me. That's the arms. Where, where can people find you, and kind of what are the details of Arts the Arms in the future? And so, uh, yeah, Arts the Arms. We've got three dates programmed in for this year coming. So, twenty twenty, uh, we're on Thursday, April the 9th, Wednesday, July the twenty second, and December the third. So, we've also got a um, call out for writing at the moment, which lasts until the twenty seventh of March. So. If you're listening to this and if you're sort of Leeds or Yorkshire based, uh, please get in contact. Um, on our socials, we're Arts at the Arms everywhere. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Uh, so hopefully we're quite easy to find. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you.